Hi everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today I'm excited to talk about a topic that we really haven't touched on yet, and I really wanted to do this show because, as our avid listeners might know, we've been doing a lot of shows on the Islamic State or issues related to the Islamic State or Syria and Iraq. So today we are going to talk about the role of women and children in the Islamic State. And as I mentioned, this topic really hasn't gotten enough attention, at least in my mind. So I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Mia Bloom to the show. And she is a professor of security studies at University of Massachusetts Lowell. And first of all, welcome to the show, show, Dr. Bloom. Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea. So as I mentioned, this is a really interesting topic and it's very important. Um, I feel like it's really not been focused on enough, at least in the general media. So I'm glad that we're going to have your expertise on this topic today. Why don't we start off the show by looking at the role of women first, and then we'll move on to children. Okay. So I will let you um, open the floor with the role of women, and maybe we could start off with talking about what might be the potential drive that draws women to the Islamic State, whether they're in the region or, say, what we call foreign fighters, but foreign women traveling to Syria to join this group. Okay, I think one of the things that I've encountered as we've been hearing about more and more Western women, especially women who have left France, women, you know, the two young girls from Vienna, or even girls who have disappeared from Minneapolis um, or Denver, I think that there seems to still be such a shock and a surprise that women are involved in terrorism. And part of what I wanted to do is put into context the fact that you know, all terrorist groups that I can think of include a role for women. Now, in some instances, the women have a very frontline role, and there may be women involved in suicide bombing operations, or they may be involved as snipers or in information gathering. And so the idea that women are involved in terrorism, although people keep thinking it's a new thing, is something that has gone back, you know, can go back all the way over a 100 years. When we look at the very first terrorism trial, it was actually a woman who had tried to kill uh, the uh, governor of St. Petersburg. So that's part of it. I think what we see is a difference here is it's almost like the Islamic State has gone back in time as far as the role for women. Women are not involved even in a way that they were in Al-Qaeda. They are being recruited overwhelmingly to be rewards for the male foreign fighters or to help recruit male foreign fighters to Syria because these guys know that if they go to Syria, they're going to get hooked up with a wife. And in fact, they've even created a marriage bureau in Raqqa. So for the women's perspective, one of the things that has really puzzled me is why these women are interested in joining the Islamic State and how they're able to convince women who have grown up in a Western context to just be a wife and mother and not to have a more... Um, perhaps exciting frontline role. And as you mentioned, I'm, I'm seeing this in accounts as well, and it's, it's so fascinating, especially for the modern woman. I mean, I'm not going to get into what I'd call the modern woman, but as you said, we're, we're in a day and age where women have a lot more rights, a lot more freedoms, and the Islamic State pretty much purely looks like they're attracting these women to come and, as you said, be wives, caretakers of their husband, raise children, and it's, it's amazing that there's a number of young women that 
find this desirable. Do you think it's this nostalgia idea of going back to a time where things were simpler and, you know, roles were more defined? Is Do you think that might be a draw? I don't know if it's a question of going back to a time when things are more simple because even some of these women who were on social media and either they were posting to Facebook or Ask FM or to Twitter, their interest in going to Syria, someone like Aksa Mahmoud, talked about being a frontline activist, talked about being um, a suicide bomber or talked about being, you know, a sharpshooter. And so I think what happens is the women do get attracted to involvement thinking that they're going to have a much more active role. Um, if you think about the fact that um, uh, one of the women who, who tried to leave from Denver, uh, Ms. O'Donnell, thought that she was going to have a frontline role. She even trained with the U.S. Army Explorers. And yet... We know for a fact the moment that these women get to the Islamic State, they really only have a very unidimensional opportunity, and that's to be wives and mothers. And so it really does um, draw a lot of questions or raise a lot of questions for me that these are women who started, at least in terms of social media, saying that they wanted to do something more active, and then in the end, you know, someone like Shannon Maureen Connolly or someone like Aksa Mahmood isn't going to have that opportunity. So I think that, you know, there might be a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on that the women don't have a chance to do it and they accept their fate. And as you mentioned, it was very interesting on an Ask, Ask FM account, um, one of the Islamic State's militants was answering questions to women that were interested in coming to Syria um, to either find husbands or be part of the Islamic State. And there was an account where one writer, writer asked him if um, there were going to be Arabic lessons and Quranic studies. She wasn't from the Arab world, so that was something new to her, but she was drawn to it, clearly. And the militant's response was quite interesting. I'm going to quote what, what I found on the Internet. And he says, As I say to all sisters, it depends on the man upon whom you marry, whether he wants a simple housewife whom he can just lock indoors or bother with one who is more outgoing and wants his wife more than that simple life. And so in his own words, he kind of makes it very clear that the husband is going to make the choice on what type of wife he likes and wants in life. But um, he kind of really lays it out that you are going to be a housewife, at least in my interpretation of that quote. And it also introduces the possibility that she's going to be locked into a room. Exactly. Yes. That, that I can't imagine how that, you know, that, that then corresponds with, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. Because if at some level some of these young European girls who are tweens and teens who are being recruited online by members of the Islamic State and very often by other women who have joined the Islamic State, um, if they're, you know, having strict parents and they're being locked in their rooms, you would think that the possibility of being locked in a different room wouldn't be very appealing. And so there must be something else going on. You know, Shadi Hamid phrased it very succinctly at a meeting in Washington, D.C., in which he said that many of these people are tired of being the subjects of history and by participating in the Islamic State, they get to be agents of history. They get to have a more proactive role. And even if that proactive role is in a support capacity for the women, they are still seeing it as an exciting endeavor that will give them all these opportunities and take them places that they never would have gone. But, you know, there is really a disconnect 
when you have someone like Shannon Maureen Connolly training with the Army Explorers, when you have Aksuma Mood talking about being a bomber, when you have all these women talking about how they want to be so active, they want to, you know, another woman said that she wanted to be the first woman to behead a British or American citizen. And yet, when push comes to shove, the women are going to have a very limited role, except for a handful of these women who may or may not be on patrol or may be used um, in the capacity as checkpoints to search other women, uh, the majority, you know, the hundreds of women who have gone, the majority of them are there. They're going to have kids. And for every child, there's going to be a subsidy. But also it's a way of ensuring that the male militants don't leave. In other words, they've got roots now. And it really does convey the idea that this terrorist group is different from previous organizations. They're putting down roots. They're creating a new society. And they are really founding a new Islamic state. And I mean, looking at accounts in my own research on foreign fighters that are going to Syria, male foreign fighters, a lot of the time you see the initial draw to Syria is this idea of helping the Syrian people rid Bashar, uh, rid Syria of Bashar al-Assad. And looking at women, women tend to naturally have a instinctive caregiving feeling. Um, do you think some of these women are initially drawn to Syria for that reason, more of an idea of like by a humanitarian lens, helping soldiers, helping children, helping people in humanitarian efforts. And then once they get there, it's just completely different than what they signed up for. No, absolutely. I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that when you look at some of the women, especially the women who've been raised in the West, um, they're seeing participation in the Islamic state. And this is especially if the women are professional. I read about one woman who had been a doctor in the UK, and now she is a doctor at a hospital in Raqqa serving women of the Islamic state because you wouldn't be able to have a male doctor with a female, you know, examining a female patient that would be considered inappropriate. So I do think that both among Syrian women who were drawn to Jabhat al-Nusra and to a lesser extent to the Islamic State, as well as many, many of these women who are going with their husbands, with their families, en masse from countries within the Arab world, they probably are looking at images of barrel bombs, they're looking at the bombed out cities in Syria, and they are moved you don't need to be looking at a radical website in order to have a sense of outrage against Bashar al-Assad. You just need to watch CNN. And those images, especially in 2012 and 2013, were just overwhelming and shocking when you think about how many children have been killed and the brutality of the regime. I think what we are seeing, however, and this would be both true for the men and the women, people who joined because they wanted to fight, to, to fight Bashar al-Assad, may actually be um, disappointed that they're now involved in these internecine sectarian conflicts, that it's one jihadi group fighting for dominance over another jihadi group. And that might explain some of the people who have left the theater and gone back to their um, their countries of origin. So it is something to possibly exploit the disconnect that these people thought they were going to go fight Bashar al-Assad, and the reality is they're fighting each other. And I'd like to go back to Aksa Mahmoud. And if I'm correct, 
she was quite active on social media promoting women to come to Syria for a while there. Um, if I'm correct, she went by the title Mother of Lions, the Um Leith. And I was wondering if you could sort of look at her promotion of bringing women to Syria and portraying this idealist life of being this fantastic housewife and raising the next set of children that will continue the Islamic State's ideology and so forth. Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, her engagement with young women to recruit women from the West, I think it continues. I don't think that she has stopped, even though we now know her identity and, you know, her nom de guerre is Umlaith is no longer the way in which we refer to her. We refer to her by her real name, Aksa Mahmoud. Um, one of the things that, you know, when you study the literature within the field of criminology, uh, there is often the appearance within uh, studies of pedophiles of something called the deviant peer. In other words, occasionally, instead of having the, you know, individual pedophile approach a child, they use an intermediary, sometimes an older sibling or, you know, they, they get access to the child in a variety of ways. And I think that in some respects, for me, Aksa Mahmood functions as a deviant peer. She is facilitating access to these young girls, whereas, you know, if it was old men approaching these young girls on the Internet, I think right away they, you know, they would be very resistant. They might have their guard up. But because Aksama Mood is 20 years old and she's young and she's affable, she's attractive, I think the girls let their guard down. And Aksa is able to access these women in a way that, you know, if it was just directly men trying to recruit these women, they wouldn't be nearly as successful. Um, so what she's done is she's portrayed this very idealized version of what life in the Islamic State will be like. And a lot of it focuses on the sisterhood, these wonderful feelings that the women have for each other, the compassion, the support network, they cook together, they sit around drinking tea, you know, they take pictures of the lovely food that they make and they post it up on social media in order to at least create the sense that you're not completely leaving your family, you're just getting a new family. And I think it's, again, very insidious way of persuading these young girls to pick up and leave home. The other thing we've seen on social media is when the young girls who may be, you know, um, devout Muslims say, well, I, how do I leave without my parents' permission? You know, they find all these mechanisms to allow for the girls to disappear and, you know, uh, get from Europe to Syria by a turkey very often uh, under the radar screen. And it's, you know, it's really quite sad because I think that once the girls get there, they're in for a very rude awakening, but no one will tell them that. What will happen is once they get to Syria, they'll disappear and it's very difficult to get anybody out. And looking at this and, and continuing this further, when they get to Syria, I mean, I know there's certain accounts of young women that are unaccompanied by either a male family member or a husband they are put in houses that are sort of, like you said, a, a sisterhood of, of other women in the Islamic State until they are um, attached with a fighter and then married. So I was wondering if you could look at this a little bit. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I think that recently, as recently as uh, four days ago, 
ISIS released, uh, you know, we, we've seen previously the rape manual that ISIS released about what you can and cannot do with Yazidi women. About four days ago, they released a dating manual, and they talked about the fact that they have these female dorms when they first arrive um, as they are arranging for them to be matched up through the marriage bureau. And I think the idea is that the girls are led to believe that everything will be taken care of for them. They won't have to worry about money. They won't have to worry about a house. They won't have to worry about rent. Everything will be arranged for them. And it's really just um, a way of selling this product, this idea of being part of the Islamic State. You won't have to worry. You won't have to lift a finger. Everything will be done for you. And in fact, Aksumamud has been online convincing women of the benefits of even being a second or a third wife that you know even if you're not the sole wife of the foreign fighter there are all these other benefits and it reminded me in some ways um the hbo show big love that would involve the sister wives to help recruit the new sister wife that this is again a selling point that's a really interesting actually that's a, that's a great way of um framing it in in American standards, I guess, as a sister wife from the show. Um, and I was wondering, you mentioned the Yazdi women, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about their plight in Syria, because they're another group of women that are highly involved in this conflict there in Syria. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about them. So I think um, the Islamic State has had a very perverse way of interpreting the Surat al-Anfal in the Quran, which basically talks about how do you allocate war booty and, you know, how do you divvy up the spoils? And, you know, we have to remember that back in the 7th century, women would have been spoils of war. And in fact, up until fairly recently, women were considered spoils of war. And there was always this assumption that there would be a certain amount of sexual abuse that happens during war. And this is really a dominant theme in a lot of the feminist literature that uh, correlates warfare and the abuse, the sexual abuse of women. But what Islamic State has done is they've gone one step further. They've gone back in time in order to reintroduce the notion of slavery, that the Yazidi women, again, um, look a little bit more European than the Semitic, the Arab women. And so, unfortunately, this is actually a, a real selling point. I mean, this is something that came up in Morton Storm's um, autobiography that he wrote with Paul Cruikshank and Tim Lister, where at some point, you know, the, the comment is, oh, I'd like to find myself a blonde convert now. And that ultimately that is a litmus test or a metric of success uh, in some of these cultures which really does, you know, fly in the face of the way we see women. But the Yazidi women were being bartered, sold, traded, used, you know, to recruit some of the foreign fighters. But what was so sad is that the tales of these women, that they were being sold for as little as 12 or $13 um, in basically slave markets, I think is one of the things that finally brought global attention to the plight of the women and all the Yazidis on Mount Sinjar. I think there's just been a lot of confusion about what the Yazidi faith is. And if, when push comes to shove, um, they would have actually been one of the protected minorities under the caliphate 
during the time of Muhammad in the Ansar. So really, it's one of the additional ways in which the Islamic State is flouting Muslim tradition, because if you look at the Yazidi faith, it is very close and in fact is related to Zoroastrianism, and Zoroastrians are one of the Al-Kitab people of the book. And so along with Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians, there is to be no compulsion to convert to Islam. What the Islamic State did with the Yazidi people on Mount Sinjar and in the areas in Iraq was a complete violation of some of the most basic tenets of the religion. And so it was one of the first examples for me that although they may say that they represent an idealized form of Islam, they really are just completely bastardizing it. And they are, they're non-Muslims as far as I'm concerned. Yep, I completely agree with you on that. So why don't we transition to children? We've talked about women and children are very much attached to women and men, of course, but the family sphere. And we're seeing a lot of reports about children in the Islamic State. So let's look at some of the roles children play in this new state building process. Well, so one of the things that we saw, as I mentioned before, is that the vast majority of foreign fighters, although we have been focusing in on foreign fighters that have gone from Western countries, the vast majority of them um, left from Arab countries, from places like Tunisia, North Africa, Turkey, and the Gulf. And when these foreign fighters left, they took their whole families with them. They took the women, they took the kids, because again, the Islamic State was trying to sell the idea of a completely new society in which, you know, it was it was a great place, it was a great environment. And in fact, last year's video message, the Eid Mubarak greetings from the Islamic State, had many segments where they were showing all these kids, bring the kids, it's wonderful here, and they would have, you know, these glossy images of children, or they would have the kids playing or, you know, individuals distributing toys, <clears throat> sorry, distributing toys to the kids, you know, little toy guns, of course. That has slipped into what we've more recently seen in the last six months of children being more engaged in the sort of awful side of the Islamic State, not the idealized Disney version that they were selling, you know, with the soft images, but pictures and images of children who are either witnessing beheadings or participating in some capacity of beheadings. And the idea is that they are exposing children to extreme violence, either to desensitize them or to normalize it for children, so that as they grow up, this is not abhorrent or aberrant behavior. And now we're hearing more accounts of some of the roles that children are playing, um, things like being cooks and cleaners and guards and potentially messengers and spies within their own communities. Um, what kind of things are you hearing about this like further into these details? So we have the children involved in these support roles. And this is very similar to the way in which in many parts of Africa, we've seen child soldiers engaged in everything from cooks and porters, uh, ferrying messages. This is actually something that has been unfortunately common in places like Sierra Leone and Liberia and Uganda, um, and even to a lesser extent in the Rwandan genocide. But what's unique, I think, about the Islamic State is that they are creating a whole generation of children. They're training what they call the Islamic State cubs. So we've seen videos released 
of children being trained in, you know, sort of what looks like hand-to-hand combat and they're fighting one another with sticks and they're, you know, being told to jump up a certain amount of times and do cartwheels and, you know, and other different kinds of gymnastics. And I think the idea was to convey that the Islamic State is preparing the next generation for, you know, very quickly stepping into their father's shoes. And, you know, the research that I'm doing now that examines the role of children and the changing nature of children's role in terrorist movements, uh, writing a book called Small Arms with Dr. John Horgan, my colleague at University of Massachusetts Lowell, we are trying to show that there are very different pathways. We've seen children have sort of youth movements in places like Lebanon or Palestine where Hamas has a youth wing or Hezbollah has a youth wing. The Bakuts in Sri Lanka, the LTT had a youth wing. But the different terrorist organizations involve children in very different ways. The vast majority of terrorist groups may get the kids young, train them, teach them, and even you know um, convince them of the ideology or brainwash them, however you want to see that. But they don't actually use the kids while they're still children. The Islamic State seems to be preparing the way to use very, very young operatives because ultimately this is a way to shake the complacency of your enemy, to use an operative that you never expect. And of course these groups are exploiting sort of the inherent naivete of children, the fact that the children don't themselves necessarily have a sense of their own mortality, that the kids are not going to be risk-averse, but they really don't have an understanding of what they're involved with. And so it really is, again, a form of child exploitation that is increasing. We're seeing that the average age of terrorists are decreasing over time. We're seeing suicide bombers as young as six and seven being trained. And these kids have no idea, you know, what it, what does it mean to be a suicide bomber? In I've heard there are reports out of Kobani of actually seeing young children. I mean, we don't have complete ages, but what looks to be young children fighting alongside adult militants um, in the sieges in Kobani. And have you heard anything about that? Well, I've heard, for example, you know, when Vice went in and did their five-part series on the Islamic State, um, the spokesperson for the Islamic State said that children only when they turn 16 are given military training, but yet in the same you know, video, they showed nine-year-olds being trained with weapons. So mm-hmm. even they were inconsistent during the, you know, this very preliminary interviews that they did with Vice News. And uh, it was really just quite shocking. I don't know if the children are going to be fighting side by side. I think what you tend to see is children are used during periods of time in the conflict, especially after a loss in battle, but also um, when you least expect an operative to be either a woman or a child, that's usually the time that a terrorist organization is going to manipulate that population because you've created perhaps um, a profile of who the enemy is. And by using these very young children or using women or using very, very old people, this is a way of circumventing any profile that might exist among the security forces. As far as I can tell, what we've seen with the Islamic State is that they are rendering the children immune to violence, that they are in places like Kobani, 
making the children watch videos of beheadings. And that ultimately, as far as I can tell, the reason to do that is to desensitize them over time to the, you know, to not only witnessing violence, but the perpetration of violence and to normalize this kind of activity as something that kids do routinely the way, you know, kids play video games or kids play baseball or soccer, kids get involved in beheadings. But I think at this point, the only thing I've heard of thus far is children having to witness beheadings, but not yet necessarily fighting side by side. And as you mentioned beheadings, um, a lot of people that are following this whole situation in Syria and Iraq, I'm sure heard about the images of especially the Australian uh, foreign fighter that had his son posing with a severed head, which made a lot of headlines because of the horrid, gruesome image that there's this little child holding this head and, and looking completely fine about doing it. And as you said, it's, it's a, almost a way of indoctrinating these young children into believing that this is a normal way of life as a child almost. And I think in that particular case, we found out later on that the uh, the jihadi had a long history of mental illness and that he had taken all three of his children and only posed one of them. You know, the kid is holding up the head with like both hands because I'm assuming that the head is quite heavy. Um, this is, again, for me, uh, a form of child abuse. It's It's almost like a snuff porn where they have the kids posing with body parts they have the kids posing in front of the heads that are piked on stakes lining the road that the kids are almost like a prop and you see this in some of the videos where the children are being let's say interrogated or asked questions about how wonderful it is to be a member of the islamic state and how much better the islamic state is than whatever european country they left and you can see the kids are looking off camera because the parents are coaching them what to say I mean, again, it's the ultimate manipulation. And this is where the Islamic State is very different from the cases I mentioned uh, previously in Africa. In Africa, a lot of the child soldiers are in that situation because their families have been killed or their villages have been destroyed. And it's the militias that take the kids and almost adopt them and give them that new family. But the parents are not involved in the process. This is really, you know a really perverse form of parenting where not only are the parents alive, but they're actually encouraging the children to participate. Now, in other instances that we've heard from the Islamic State, when Syrian kids were being recruited locally at some of the schools, if the parents objected, uh, they were actually threatened by the Islamic State. And so some of the kids may be joining the Islamic State, not because they want to, but they're trying to protect their families. And that's much more similar to the scenarios we've seen in Africa. So I think we're going to see a huge diversity and spectrum of how the kids get involved, how long they stay involved, and what roles they ultimately will be playing in the movement. Are you seeing also the abduction of children in, in parts of Syria where they abduct the children and then indoctrinate them into the views of the Islamic State and use them for whatever means they desire? I think I've heard of instances among the Yazidi children where the kids are abducted and, you know, the girl children will be sold off and, you know, as sexual slaves, but the boys may be indoctrinated. And this, again, is almost like uh, the tradition of the Circassians um, under the Ottoman Empire where Slavic kids were uh, kidnapped, trained, let's say, among the Janissaries, uh, were trained to be soldiers 
and they were that was the slave warrior caste that the Ottomans used for uh, about a hundred and hundred and fifty years. But I think that again, it's it's one of these horrible um, realities that the children don't get to be children in the Islamic State. They are they are going to be exposed to very adult phenomena, and they're going to be expected to engage in you know activities that are so beyond their years. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see many more abductions, especially as resistance to the Islamic State locally grows, and you have a lot of whether it's uh, Shiite families whose kids may be abducted or Kurdish families whose children may be abducted. For the most part, you'll probably see that among the groups that the Islamic State considers enemy because it really will alienate them further from the Sunni population if they start kidnapping kids. And that is a surefire way to poison sort of the sea amongst which the fishes are swimming. You really do need a local population to provide some sort of support because the Islamic State fighters are not that numerous. So they need to have local groups that have either cooperating with them or supporting them in some capacity. And this is, again, where they've exploited the Sunni-Shia sectarian split in places like Iraq, where a lot of the Sunnis felt completely alienated from Shia governments that have, um, you know, really taken advantage of their situation and exploited and not power, not shared the power in any genuine fashion but if these if these families start losing children to the conflict against their will they will turn on the islamic state because these are not necessarily true believers and you have so many former baathists now that are working with the islamic state in iraq they're not you know connected to the islamic state through ideology it's really through expediency that it's a an alliance more, a strategic alliance, than it is that they've convinced former Baathists that the Islamic caliphate is the way to go. So looking at the idea of indoctrinating children and, of course, women and actually any general population into the views of the Islamic State, I mean, I read an account recently of a father that I think he was in Mosul, but I don't quote me on that. And he was talking about how the Islamic State is taking over the schools and creating their own curriculums and basically teaching kids their ideas, um, their interpretation of Sharia, um, their interpretation of morals and so forth. And it really seems like from that account and other things that I'm reading that the Islamic State is using children, number one, as well as women, to really focus on this idea of state building a long term goal so that you have this first generation and potentially there's this next generation that has grown up in this ideology and these beliefs and that it's the idea of continuing on. And I was wondering if you could look at that and if you have any accounts of the I, the type of curriculum that you might be seeing in Islamic State areas um, that are ruled under the Islamic State. Well, I, I think I put this on social media that uh, someone said that they thought it could almost be an article in The Onion, but apparently the Islamic State has taken some of the Saudi curriculum and adopted it. And it's a very limited curriculum that doesn't focus on, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. It's really just about 
studying the Quran, and then I guess there would be a separate aspect of training for militant activities. So the, the problem would be that on the one hand, the Islamic State has made a concerted effort, especially since July, of recruiting professionals. They need engineers, they need doctors, they need people who can make the trains run on time. But the curriculum that they are exposing children to will not provide the needed skill set for a next generation of an Islamic State population because they will still need things like doctors and engineers and lawyers and judges. And so it really is a disconnect that I don't think it's very good planning. They know they need professionals, but they're not offering a curriculum that will engender a generation of professionals because the curriculum they're using is almost exclusively a religious-based curriculum. Um, they're also not going to, you know, give them the needed skills, things like foreign language, so that within the next generation, the children who have immigrated from Europe or from North America with their families will not be able to be fluent in a, mul a multiplicity of languages. So it is going to be very challenging for the Islamic State. I personally don't think we're going to get to that point. I don't think that uh, I, I tend to disagree with a lot of the conventional wisdom. I don't think that the Islamic State is a long-term endeavor. I think that it is far weaker than we realize. Um, numerically, it's not as strong as some of the more conservative voices, people like Peter King, or if you watch Fox News, will convince you that the Islamic State is looming and is an actual threat to the United States. I think it's a major threat to the neighboring countries. And it is clearly a threat in terms of its ability to inspire people in North America, in Australia, and in Europe, perhaps even in France, although we don't know what specifically inspired the attacks against Charlie Hebdo. But I don't think that it is a long-term endeavor. I don't think that they have the capability and the strength and the organization to be able to withstand a long-term onslaught. And I think at some point in going into the future, what we are likely going to see is uh, very unusual and strategic alliances, perhaps, you know, with Iran or other countries that are very prepared to fight the Islamic State. And this is where the front line of the activities will be. It'll be in Syria and Iraq, but it's not like, let's say, going back to the time of the Prophet, where country after country fell before the Muslims. And in many instances, they didn't even need to fight because the rulers of various cities would approach the Muslims and say, you know, we are happy for you to come in and we will pay the jizya tax or, you know, a few people here will actually convert. It's not, it's not the same scenario. Um, people are not as enthusiastic about the Islamic State locally in Iraq and Syria as what we saw when Islam was first expanding out of the Arabian Peninsula. And looking at the actions of the Islamic State, it's quite understandable why they're not as enthusiastic as way back when. Oh, absolutely. And I think the fact that you have this inherent split between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State makes it difficult for a lot of people who ideationally would support the ideology of Al-Qaeda. They may even actually support Al-Qaeda, but ISIS is too radical for Al-Qaeda. That really just tells you something. And it isn't attracting, you know, the highest caliber of individuals to the Islamic State. It's attracting, you know, uh, a variety, sorry, excuse me, a variety of people, but not necessarily the kinds of people you need to sustain 
um, a state building operation. And actually looking at that and going back to children, I mean, I know we're talking about the Islamic State, but are we seeing the use of children in groups like Al-Qaeda's Al-Nusra Front and maybe potentially the Free Syrian Army, or is this solely very much an Islamic State issue? I'm I'm guessing that um, we probably... If we looked closely at Jabhat al-Nusra, if we looked at the Free Syrian Army, we would see very young people. I remember some of the earlier Vice videos that came out last year and a year and a half ago had young kids who had joined Jabhat al-Nusra at the age of 14 and 15. So maybe not, maybe not nine and 10 year olds, but certainly older teenagers. And again, they were joining for the reason that you mentioned earlier, outrage against Bashar al-Assad, opposition to the Syrian regime, and again, a belief in the ideology. Uh, at least from the people who I saw interviewed, there didn't seem to be coercion. And you saw that the families were not enthusiastic about the possibility of the kids getting killed on the battlefield. So my guess is that, you know, as this conflict gets more brutal, we're going to see very young people on all sides. So this is your first time on the Loopcast, and we're hoping to have you on again because I've found this talk extremely fascinating, and I know our listeners are going to find it the same way. Um, We like to give our guests the option at the end of the talk to maybe touch on something we haven't touched on in, in the discussion or a final statement. So I'd like to hand over the platform to you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I really, I really want to say that the work that, you know, uh, focusing in on children is very different there. We really haven't understood the role the children play either in warfare or in militant activities. I think part of the problem is there is a real tension as to whether young children can really understand the ideology or whether they're just parroting what they hear from their parents and from the adults around them. But as far as I'm concerned, having children involved is one of, aside from being insidious and an ethical and a horrible thing, I think it's strategically, it's one of the ways in which terrorist groups are making themselves immune to things like uh, drone attacks and targeted assassinations. Because if the children can so easily step into the shoes of the fathers, it really does mean that these groups are inoculated from the kinds of heavy-handed counterterrorism policies that we've engaged in the past. And so an example would be, you know, when the United States went after Anwar al-Awlaki and also his 15-year-old son, I think that we're going to see a new generation of children immune to violence, but also that these groups will not necessarily be eroded by targeted assassination of the deaths of their parents. So we really do have to act quickly before this next generation is lost to us. Well, those are very important words to end on, as well as sad and disturbing. Um, and, and those that have looked at this topic um, on their own, as some of the images we've mentioned and some of the videos, it, it is very disturbing when you look at the children and with the women. It's it's very surprising, as we talked earlier in this talk, about how they still are going with um, such a, at least in my mind, a bleak future for themselves. 
Anyways, I just would really like to thank you for coming on the show and spending your evening with us and lending your expertise on these topics. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to discuss my my new research and very excited about it and hopefully uh, we'll get it done quickly so uh, maybe we can talk again once I have some more results. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chelsea.